Well, as Barry said, we're in week two of our new series, Witness, and we're looking at Jesus through the eyes of His disciples. We're looking at their experiences with Jesus to find out what we can learn about Him. Last week, Marin kicked off the series talking to us about what four of Jesus' disciples learned about Jesus during their first encounters with Him. And I just have to say, if you've not heard that sermon, find it and listen. It's really good, very helpful just by itself, but also for the feel of where we're headed through the series. Sperry also said this week we're looking at somebody who is not technically a disciple of Jesus, but he was one of the first people to publicly, publicly confess that he believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and that person is John the Baptist. John the Baptist played such an important role in the story of Jesus' life that all four Gospels, all four Gospel writers include a good deal about John the Baptist. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all mention him. And when you take all of that together, we get a whole bunch of stuff about John and his experience with Jesus. And so we're going to look at that today. But before we dive into the Scripture, I want to pray for us, and then we'll get going. Father, I ask uh, first that you will speak through me, that I will go into the background, and that your Word and your Spirit will be alive in this space today. We pray that all that I say will bring you honor, and that you will be pleased with our time together this morning. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I said, all four Gospels mention John the Baptist. Well, actually, they do more than mention him. All four Gospel writers give us detailed descriptions of John's ministry, and that ministry was preparing the way for Jesus. But along the way, to get to that stuff, we also learn about John's parents. We learn about his miraculous birth. We learn about his preaching style, his interactions with all sorts of people. We find out about his arrest and finally his unjust execution. Now make no mistake about it, the four Gospels were all written with one primary focus, and that's Jesus. And yet, John the Baptist still gets a lot of attention, and the reason is really simple. John the Baptist played the key role, the key role in introducing Jesus to the world. He is a very important person in the story of Jesus' life. But as important as he was, we must admit together that he was also an unusual fellow. Let's start with his birth. He was the only son of a couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth, a couple which the Gospel of Luke tells us were very old, or literally in the Greek it says they were advanced in their days. They were advanced in their days when Elizabeth gave, a, gave miraculous birth to this little boy, John. And not only was John miraculously born to aged parents, but his coming, even before he was born, his coming birth 
was announced to his father by an angel. That doesn't happen very often. And listen to what this angel told Zechariah about his coming son. He said, you, Zechariah, will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth, and he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Talk about expectations for this little boy. Can you imagine being his dad and wondering, what's he going to accomplish? And then think, when is he going to accomplish this? Expectations were great. And Luke's gospel also tells us that when John was born, due to his parents' age and the circumstances surrounding his birth, the entire region where they lived was abuzz with this story. I love the way the King James puts it. It says, news of John's birth was noised about. News of his birth was noised, actually it's abroad, not about, it's abroad. And then it says, in the hill country of Judea. It's like this was on everybody's mind. We find out even that Zechariah, the father, wrote a song about little John, the, not yet the Baptist, but little John. And it speaks to all the amazing things that he expected John would eventually do, not the least of which was introduce the coming Messiah to the Jewish people and the world. And my bet is that when John was growing up, he heard about his miraculous birth all the time. And I'd also bet he heard his dad sing that song over and over and over while he was growing up. And the first chapter of Luke ends saying that everyone in young John's life had great expectations for this young man. How would you like to be born under that? The expectation that you're going to introduce the world to the Messiah. Well, the very next thing we do hear about John, though, is that he has left his home and he's moved into what is called the wilderness. Now, don't think desert when you hear the word de wilderness. It's not desert. It's got a scrubby land. It's a space where you can't grow anything. But there were still sheep and goats out there. And it was, but it's a rough place. And it was there that he began what was to become one of the most unusual ministries in all of the Bible. First off, John was unusual in appearance. Both the Gospels of Matthew and Mark tell us that John the Baptist wore camel hair clothing and a leather belt around his waist. I've never worn camel hair clothing, but Everybody that knows about it says it is rough stuff. You don't wear it for comfort. In fact, it was the rough condition clothing of the time. And the wilderness was a rough place. And it warranted wearing camel hair clothing. And the mention of a leather belt is actually an important detail. Workers would wrap 
the, the bottoms of the, they, they wore robes and they would pull their robes up like this above their knees and wrap them up and then they'd tie that leather belt around them like this so they could move around when they were working, you know, so they could get around easily. And I know I've said this before from the pulpit because on the podcast they have a thing of it and they always poke it when I'm on there and it goes, they called it girding your loins. <laughs> Gird your loins, Gird, that's what they do on the podcast. Anyway, I find it ridiculous, but they found it funny, so. But here's the deal. Rich people didn't have to worry about girding their loins because they didn't work. So they wore little sashes or flimsy little silk belts with their clothes. But John the Baptist had work to do. And his belt was a sign of solidarity with the working poor. But the bottom line is this. Most people didn't wear camel hair clothing with a leather belt. He looked unusual. And he also had an unusual diet. We are told that he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, locusts is grasshoppers. Think grasshoppers. And grasshoppers were not a regular part of the Jewish diet. Poor people would occasionally eat them, but nobody ever served you grasshoppers when you came over as a guest. They didn't eat grasshoppers. And wild honey is interesting. The Roman world had a, a, a thriving, that's the best way to say it, a thriving beekeeper honey industry. In fact, honey was a part of almost everyone's diet in the ancient days. Wild honey, on the other hand, was gathered by finding a wild beehive, lighting a fire under it to smoke the bees out, and then quickly getting what honey you can get out of there. And apparently, John the Baptist was not interested in commercial honey. He preferred wild honey with his grasshoppers, and that was unusual too. And John was especially unusual in what he had to say. Preaching in the first century Jewish world consisted mostly of civilized rhetorical finesse. Did I seem rather finesse-like there when I did that? It just it felt like it. It was saying the right words with great flair. But John the Baptist wanted nothing to do with either. With this either. He is quoted in all four Gospels to have preached like he was one of the old-time prophets. He preached with great fire. And he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as preparation for the coming of the Messiah. And I have to tell you that to a first-century Jewish crowd, this message was not only unusual, it was almost unimaginable for a number of reasons, the first of which is that Jews did not get baptized. Baptism was something Gentiles did when they chose to become followers of the Jewish law. It was a symbolic moment in their lives. And you know what they called it? Being born again. These Gentiles would go into the water as Gentiles. And when they came back out again, they'd been born again. They were now Jews who, they were part of the Jewish family and they were following the law and Jews didn't ever need to be born again. 
And secondly, most Jews believed that simply due to having been born a Jew, guaranteed they would inherit eternal life in God's coming kingdom. Jews being judged by the Messiah wasn't on their radar. In fact, we know that many religious Jews even said that repentance was a silly, unnecessary bother. And yet, John the Baptist's message was essentially this, you Jewish people have wandered so far from what God intended for you that it's as if you aren't even Jewish. You need to repent from your foolish lives, and if you're serious about a relationship with God, you need to do what the Gentiles do. You need to get baptized and be born again. And that message was really unusual. But multitudes of people responded to John's message of repentance. And it was all in their expectation that the Messiah was coming soon. And for most Jews, John's message was a message of hope. Yes, it included some rough things about repentance and judgment, but it was a hopeful message that said, our Savior is finally coming. We also know from the gospel stories that John the Baptist had a good number of disciples of his own. People who were traveling with him, learning from him, looking forward with him to the arrival of the Messiah. And when Jesus did arrive on the scene, it was John who first publicly recognized that Jesus was the Savior. Why, John, uh, Jesus' disciple John, the disciple that wrote the Gospel of John, and, and I just have to tell you that about one out of five people in Israel at that time were named John. So we get a lot of Johns here. It's just true. There's a John who was a disciple who wrote the Gospel of John. And then there's John the Baptist who is not that guy. But John the disciple wrote about the day that Jesus was seen by, first seen by John the Baptist. And even though Jesus hadn't started his public ministry, he was walking towards John the Baptist, and John the Baptist sees him, and he shouted out, look, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. Now, this is the only place in all four of the Gospels where Jesus is called the Lamb of God. And yet we know that John the Baptist would never have called Jesus by this name. This is a name that's filled with all sorts of meaning to the Jewish people. He'd have never called him by that name if he'd not believed with all of his heart that Jesus was the one who was preparing the way for the Jewish people to find what? Salvation. In fact, once Jesus' public ministry started, it was John himself who said over and over, he said, I, John, am not the Messiah. He said, Jesus is the coming Savior. And he even encouraged his own disciples to leave him and to begin following Jesus. Maron talked about that last week. John the Baptist said directly that Jesus needed to become greater and greater. Jesus needed to increase and that he, John the Baptist, needed to become less and less. Such was his confidence that Jesus was the Savior of the world. But even though Jesus was gaining in popularity, 
John the Baptist was still somebody people were paying attention to. And not just the Jewish people, but also the ruling Roman establishment was still paying attention to him, and particularly Herod Antipas, who was the highest ranking Roman official in that region of Galilee. And you see, Herod Antipas claimed to be living by the Jewish law. He said, I'm doing all the right things like the rest of you Jews. He claimed to be Jewish, and he claimed to be living by the law, but he had also recently stolen his brother's wife and married her, and John the Baptist was being very vocal about how stealing your brother's wife and marrying her was a direct, wicked breaking of God's law. And of course, neither Herod nor his new wife like John going around publicly accusing them of being the worst of sinners. But Herod was shrewd enough to know that John had so much popular support that he couldn't just kill him to shut him up. He knew that the people believed that John the Baptist was a prophet, and there might even be riots if he killed him. So to keep John quiet, Herod had John arrested, but he just threw him into prison and left him there. Now, it's important to remember that John was not in prison due to anything related to Jesus. He was there because he had offended Herod and his wife. And how long John languished in prison, we're not told. But what we do know is that while he was there, he was wondering about some things. Not the least of which, he was wondering about Jesus. Listen to what we're told about John's wondering in Matthew's gospel. Why don't we all turn to that? Everybody get a Bible and look up Matthew. I said John, didn't I? It's Matthew's gospel, chapter 11, verse 1. It's on page 808 in the House Bible. It's Matthew 11, verse 1. Let's everybody turn there. This is an important passage. In Matthew 11, verse 1. This is what we read there. It says, when Jesus had finished giving these instructions to his 12 disciples, by the way, it's 38 verses of really strong instructions. It's a great read sometime if you want to find out what Jesus wants from us. But he finishes that instruction, and it says, and he went out to teach and preach in towns throughout the region. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? Now, a lot of people see this question by John the Baptist as serious doubt on his part. I'm not 100% sure that it's all about doubt I mean, you need to think about what John had been doing out there in the wilderness. What he'd been doing was he'd been preaching a really strong, fearless message that the Messiah would be coming in judgment. He said, it's going to come with fire. And my bet is that John was expecting that whoever this Messiah was, that he would come with a fearless attitude just like his, that he'd come with fire. 
And I think the question was more like this. This is more the attitude of the question. It's like, Jesus, are you going to start taking names and kicking you-know-what? Or do we need to be looking for someone else who's going to bring judgment on this evil world? That's more what the question was. You see, John was okay with Jesus being a prophet and a teacher. He could be a healer even. That's fine. And yet he was uncertain about Jesus' lack of bold action that John had been expecting the Messiah was going to bring to the world. And again, John wasn't in prison for anything connected to Jesus. He just wanted to know whether Jesus was going to live up to his expectations of what the Messiah should be. But look at what Jesus told John's disciples. He says, go back to John and tell them what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. What Jesus did was to point John back to a prophecy in the book of Isaiah that was central to what most Jewish people believed was true about the coming Messiah. Jesus was reminding John the Baptist of Isaiah 35, a passage that from its very first words right through to the end of that whole chapter, the whole thing is telling us about what is coming when the Messiah comes? And it's, it was a source of comfort and hope and good news to the Jews. And most of the verses are simply about how the, the kingdom is going to be a wonderful place, a wonderful place to live. But I have to tell you, right in the middle of that chapter, we get this, and when he comes, speaking of the Messiah, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness, and spring, streams of water will, will, streams will water the wasteland. Now, it's important to know that all of the people mentioned in this passage the blind, the lame, and the deaf were thought by the Jewish people at the time to be as good as dead. This is important. You see, their blindness or their deafness or their physical disability kept them outside of the life of the community in almost every aspect. The worst being that they weren't allowed to enter the temple to worship. And to make matters worse, almost everyone then believed that it was someone's sin, either the person who was blind or the person with a disability, that they had sinned somewhere, maybe even in the womb, or that their parents had sinned And that had caused them to be disabled in the first place. There was no general sense of empathy towards people who were in this circumstance. And Jesus, by healing them, was in the minds of the people at that time giving life back to the dead. He was literally raising people from the dead, and he was figuratively 
raising people from the dead. And did you notice a little addendum that Jesus added to the message? He says, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. The raw Greek of this statement by Jesus is something like this, and blessed is the one who is not offended in me. Now, a couple of things about this sentence. First, the word blessed here does not mean like you and I tend to mean that you're getting some good things from someone. When somebody gives you something, you go, that really blesses me, or I was really blessed by that. That made me feel, you know, it's like you get something to be blessed, and you're blessed when you get something. Uh, That's how we talk about it, but that's not how they thought about blessing. What Jesus meant And this is what the word meant, that that word that gives us blessing, it meant that you had an inner happiness, a deep sense of contentment within your soul. That's what you get. And he says, you're going to get that deep contentment in your soul if you aren't, and then he says, offended by me. Now, the Greek word that is translated offended in our Bibles is difficult to translate fully into English. The word is skandalizo. It's translated all sorts of ways. It's translated that you're offended by something, that you stumble over something, or that you fall away from something, or you remove yourself from something that you don't want anything to do with, that kind of stuff. It's, it's root word meant that you would take a sapling and you would bend it over across a a pathway so that people would trip over it in the dark. We get the word scandal directly from this Greek word. But when we think of scandal, we think of something that's like gossipy news, it's a terrible thing. Like that's not what this is talking about at all. When Jesus said this, he meant something that means it's like this. The person who isn't tripped up by what they see me doing and hear me saying, if those things don't offend them in some way, then they're going to be contented. They'll be happy deep in their souls. And this has got me thinking. What would it have been about Jesus that would have tripped John up in his confidence that Jesus was the Messiah? Why would he ask this question? Well, I can think of a number of things. First off, Jesus didn't carry himself like an Old Testament prophet like Elijah at all the way John did. There was nothing unusual about Jesus. He was a regular guy who lived in regular ways. And John had lived his entire life as what was known then as a Nazarite. A Nazarite was a special group of people who were highly committed to God. And they were people who never cut their hair. Can you imagine? Never cut his hair. And they never drank wine. Do you remember when it said, and the, the angel said, and he will not drink alcoholic anything out, he'll never do. Well, John had never touched wine, and he was not allowed as a Nazarite to ever touch a dead body. And these were all signs that he was totally committed to God. And while we don't know how Jesus wore his hair at all, what we do know is that he drank wine and he touched dead bodies. And I'm sure that difference, John's thinking, well, maybe he's not quite as special or holy or committed to God as I'm thinking. (laughs) And while John had directly challenged political rulers, I mean, heck, he was in the 
in jail for offending the political rulers. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, render unto Caesars what is Caesars. And he said, if those Romans ask you to carry something for them for a mile, you carry it for two. And that doesn't sound like somebody who's going to overthrow the Romans and set up a kingdom, does it? I'm sure that difference would have tripped John up a bit. And John preached repentance and a coming judgment on everyone. Yet Jesus was preaching forgiveness and understanding. Now it's true that Jesus did call people to repentance, but he focused far more on the love of God. And I can see why John might have thought while he's sitting, remember he's in prison, and prison is nothing then like it is today. He's in a dark hole in the ground. And I can see why you would wonder, is this Jesus the one we should be looking for? You know, I'll see so many things that say he's the man right now. And it makes sense to me that John would wonder about Jesus and feel the need to ask, are you the one? Because why? Because Jesus was not living up to his expectations and it was tripping him up in that dark, nasty prison cell. And of course, all this got me thinking about what would cause me not to hold on to my confidence in Jesus. <laughs> you know, you can't help but go there. What is it that causes me to stumble, to be discontented in my soul about following Jesus, claiming he's the one? Well, that's kind of an easy one for me. Um, when I'm not getting my way in life, I really start to wonder if Jesus cares about my hopes and dreams, you know. Have you ever had something you thought was for sure what you were going to get to do or you wanted to do and you go after it and it just all falls apart? It's like, well, what was that about? It's like you start thinking, right, is Jesus even paying attention? Or when difficult times come, you know, I think about what happened last week and then what happened yesterday, and I'm going, wait a minute. Why is this happening? What's going on? Why would he abandon me like this? Speaking of abandoning me, when people do abandon me, or they abandon the church, I mean, I'm just, I don't want to get into this, but you know, it's like people abandon the church broadly, like they that I don't want anything to do with it anymore, or they say, I, I don't want anything to do with grace anymore. I can't help but take it personally. And I wonder, Jesus apparently said he had great plans for me. Are these the great plans for me, Jesus? People are going to abandon me like this? When the world, the wider world isn't going the way that I think it ought to go, I start to wonder if Jesus even cares enough to fix anything. And all of this can make me stumble. It trips me up and makes me wonder if Jesus is the one I should be looking for, my hope in, you know. It's like, is he one? You know, when you hear nothing of John's response to Jesus' answer, we do know that he lost his life in a complete miscarriage of justice soon after this exchange. Still, we have no report that John ever took back anything he said about Jesus being the Lamb of God. And what must have happened was that John came to realize that God's intentions were far different than John's expectations. Jesus was living up 
to God's desires and God's expectations. Jesus was living up to the expectations that mattered. The blind were seeing, the lame were walking, those with leprosy were being cured, the deaf were hearing, the dead were being raised to life, and the good news was being preached to the poor. And this gets right to the issue for me. Jesus' obligation, even in my life, is simply to continue to do the will of the Father, not to live up to other expectations. And from all that I can tell, John figured this out about Jesus. And what I've found is that it's still true today. You and I, don't, we don't follow Jesus so we can live up to our expectations about how our lives should go. No, we follow Jesus because he was and he still is working to do the things that really mattered to his father. father. The things that we call here at Grace, healing the broken places. And what Jesus has promised you and me is that he will be with us no matter what comes, be it difficult or wonderful, or be it heartbreaking or joyous. God's will for you and me, just like his will for John the Baptist, was that we trust him and serve him by living up to the same expectations that Jesus lived up to, bringing healing into this broken world, no matter what comes our way. And what I've found is that he's promised that as we live out those expectations, we will, we will be blessed, and we will find real contentment, a joy unimaginable in our souls. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us so much about John the Baptist. Thank you for giving us both his, his courage and his message and also his question. We thank you that this story tells us so much about your son, that he's about your business, and that you've given us your word so that we will know what your business is and we will, like your son, be about what you want to see happening in the world. Make us a community who follows you, whether the call that day is difficult or wondrous. I pray this for us in Jesus' name. Amen.